0: Certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at Lucent in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon,
1: and every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, "Oh God, is she going to be the next victim?"
0: Now, one man stands
2: accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for twenty years.
1: The DNA. Doesn't lie, and in the trial of the century, it's played a central role. Welcome to this bonus episode of Claremont in Conversation. I'm Natalie Bongiolo. Joining me today is Tim Clark and forensic expert Brendan Chapman. So, in this podcast, uh, we're going to give you a bit of a wrap of that intense six weeks of DNA evidence that we heard in the trial. So, I think we might start with uh, why is DNA absolutely critical in this particular trial, Tim?
2: Well, Nat, it's the main piece of physical evidence that links Mr. Edwards and the murders, and particularly the murder of Kira Glennon, because it is, the prosecution say, his DNA that was eventually discovered um, under, on, or around Kira's fingernails. Um, that was the bombshell revelation that we found about pre-trial that they had this physical evidence and then is a long and winding road backwards that links that evidence uh, to the rape in Karakata in 1995 uh, and the uh, break-in in in huntingdale in 1988 because the three dna samples taken from those three separate crime scenes on on three very separate occasions all match mr edwards and we also know now that mr edwards admits that rape at Karakata in 1995 and the break-in in in Huntingdale in 1988. So there is a very strong uh, silver line of DNA right through the case, Um, but it is the very crucial piece of DNA um, on Kira's fingernail that um, everything about the prosecution case hangs around, I suppose.
1: So... During the course of this trial, we've heard that these women have met very violent deaths. We've heard about blood-soaked T-shirts and things like this. Mm. So, Brendan, why could it be that really the only DNA that's been extracted or or the, the most of the DNA that's been extracted is from under the fingernails?
0: It's um. It's really about where that DNA is. Um, is is located and how I suppose isolated from all of the external environmental conditions um, it is. So I, I suppose to use the example of a fingernail, it's it's quite a, um, it's quite a quite a dry area of the body even once a body is decomposing um, compared to you know for instance an, an item of clothing which. Um, without going into the the horrific details, will become quite damp throughout the decomposition process. So moisture um, and um, dampness and wet environments, along with things like um, sunlight or the UV radiation from sunlight um, and bacteria are all contributing factors in DNA being destroyed. So I suppose if you can think about it, uh, a fingernail or, or... under a fingernail um, is actually quite reasonably protected from those elements uh, moisture well certainly moisture and um, and the decomposition process uv light somewhat maybe um, and obviously bacteria no bacteria is ubiquitous it's really everywhere um, but in comparison to an area like a piece of clothing which is um going to is going to be much more subject to moisture and and uh and fluid content
1: and is it simply a reality that the longer a body is left in the elements uh the less chances there are of finding dna you know we we know that uh kira was found 19 days after her death whereas jane was 55 days later
0: yeah it certainly is, is a contributing factor um it, it gets to a point after, after a lengthy period of time where it can even become difficult to identify the DNA of the deceased person. Um, and in some cases where we're looking at extended periods uh, after death, we, the only sort of places we can isolate DNA from uh, are things like bone marrow and, and within these really protected structures like teeth and bones, um, because the rest of that, I suppose what you would call soft tissue muscle muscle, skin is just um just really gets to a point where it's quite badly um, damaged i suppose
1: we've had quite a lot of questions about the fingernail clippings and how they were taken and why they were taken in a certain way and tim you've told us about some of the evidence about how that was done and it was quite a difficult process
2: yeah that's right Nat so this was the post-mortem of Kira the day after her body was discovered um, there had already been quite significant examinations of the body done at the scene but then when it was uh, taken away from the scene where it was found it was transported to the hospital and then a, a formal post-mortem took place there um, it was very extensive very long very uh, closely uh, observed by many many people um, but for whatever reason during that process, the pathologist in charge, Karen Margolius made the decision that rather than swab the fingernails to try and get any DNA off them that way, they would physically be clipped off Kira's uh, ten or eight fingers and, and thumbs, two thumbs and and stored um, in a little yellow pot, which we've heard a lot about, the yellow top containers. Um we don't really know the exact reason she made that decision, but we do know that she was, if you pardon the expression, a very hands-on sort of pathologist. She, she really did um, like to observe and maintain as much physical evidence as she possibly could. We know this because they she also kept the hair mass of both Jane and Kira, which are going to become very important in the coming weeks when we get to the fibres. Um so she has taken that decision. Uh, other witnesses did say that it, w- it was done like that sometimes, but not often. But given the high profile nature of this case, uh, um, you could probably read between the lines that she, she possibly wanted to preserve as much as she possibly could um, from that post mortem. And so that's, that's how it was done. Now, it wasn't done easily because, particularly, Kira's left thumb. Um, which is which which is one of the most crucial pieces of evidence and her left uh, uh, middle finger were both damaged which is also another reason why we think dr Margolius made this decision because they were damaged she was then concluding or presuming that 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 might have been done in a in a struggle um very close to kira's death um, but they were torn, and particularly the left thumbnail was torn almost completely away. So there was only a tiny little bit of quick left to be able to take that um, uh, physical specimen. And we know, because we heard from the man who took that physical specimen, how hard it was to, to, to clip away. But he did get uh, something. It was very, very small. Um, and that actually played into how that fingernail was then dealt with over the many many years to follow but because there was so little of it um ajm 40 which is what the the thumbnail was labeled was actually never um examined the dna or or anywhere anything else other than having a little shake of the pot and having a look in to see how much there was of it there. it was never taken out of the pot until it went to the uk in 2008 and this major forensic breakthrough was made An AGM42, similarly, which is the 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 finger two two over, um, that was also broken. It was also a a very small sample, and but it was enough there that it had been examined twice before it went to the UK, and then so small were those two samples that the scientists in the UK decided the best way, the best possible um, outcome for us to get a result is to combine those two fingernails, which is what they did, um, and then took the sample from that and the process um, started. So that's a very long answer for a pretty simple question, but uh, but there it is that, that, that they took the the idea that the more physical um, evidence we've got, the better.
1: Brendan, if this were a post-mortem that was happening today... Would that still happen? Would the nails be clipped, or would it be a matter of trying to swab, um, swab the DNA?
0: Um, I couldn't categorically answer that, Nat, um, because I think it's, it's the jury's still out a little bit on what's the best technique. Um, my preference, and this is purely based on my own opinion, would be to clip the nails with along the along the lines of. Um, what Tim has suggested has been the thought process by Dr. Margolius um, because if we're clipping it, we're certainly getting everything. Um, and when nails are clipped, you're even clipping them over. We should be clipping them over something like a paper surface. So even any small uh, debris or anything that drops off while you're doing that, you can collect. Um, we do know now that there are some complications with um, various swab types in the way that sometimes they actually will retain cells or DNA within the swab and we can't get it back out. Um, so my personal preference would be to not include swabs and to do it the other way. But it certainly is is not um, there's not a clear guideline that I'm aware of. It. I know there's a few publications that have been um, that have been done in this space, but nothing that really categorically says this is the way to go over the other.
1: Okay, so once um, in this case you've got a nail clipping. Can you just uh, talk to us and tell us in a nutshell how is the DNA extracted from that nail clipping?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, look, with any like what what we're extracting DNA from are, are cells, and cells are those building blocks that that make us make us up. Um, so we're looking for any of those cells or cellular material on, on a fingernail. Um, and what we need to do is the DNA is packaged up within that cell. So we need to undertake um, usually a, a chemical treatment to the cells to, to basically burst them open to release the DNA. Um, and the listeners will be familiar with me kind of comparing that to an egg or a fried egg where the yolk is the area where the DNA is is housed. So we really want to kind of pop that yolk open to release the DNA out. Then we have a series of steps, and it all depends on what particular method you use, but essentially they all do the same thing, which is whereby we're washing away all of the other cellular fragments and debris, all of the other kind of machinery that, that comes along with the cell, and just isolating the DNA. So we have this, what should be, pure DNA, um, and, and we concentrate it. So we've got it in a more concentrated uh, form. And that is kind of the, the the short, nasty version of what DNA extraction is. And once that DNA is extraction, extracted, um, it now lives in a tube as a liquid and is incredibly stable. Um, we can freeze it, we can store it for, for decades and, and come back to it and reuse it, provided we... We don't, you
1: know, run out. Yeah, as has happened in in this case. And Tim, you heard in court about um, then the moment when these the DNA samples were loaded into databases and how the police came up with a suspect.
2: Yeah. So um, that that was. the the major breakthrough as we've talked about 2008 and the testing was done by scientists from forensic science service in the UK which no longer exists but the scientists do and they've all given evidence as how um, they they came to that very similar to what um, Brennan's just described literally physically um, describing the uh, the process that they went through and uh, then it worked up the chain and but the very early results from AJM 40 and 42, even flagging um, to the scientists that did the test um, on those fingernails, were that it was a full mixture profile, which meant that all the alleles that they were looking for were full, full up with two um, contributors, um, a female and a male. So that very very early sign was that there was something really important there. It went up the chain to Dr. Jonathan Whittaker, who was um, one of the pioneers of this this particular um, low copy number test um, uh, that they used, and he confirmed that. Um, did Did the math, got the uh, extracted the DNA uh, that wasn't Kira's, sent it back to Perth, and then that was. Uh, run through at the Perth database and uh, it, it matched the then unknown male four that um, was in the frame for the Karakata rape in 1995 and that was the first direct connection between uh A crime that the the police had, they were they were already obviously connecting Kira's murder, Jane's murder and Sarah's disappearance, but they didn't have any direct link to another crime until this moment. And this moment was obviously huge because what they also had was a living witness or a living um, victim of the, the, the crime in 1995. And so they went back to her. She was a teenager in, in 95. She was a little bit older by then. Um, and then, and, you know, reused and re-looked at all the evidence connected to that attack. Um, and, and that was the, the major fork in the road for the for the macro investigation. And it's where they let it where it led the police for the next um, next 10 years.
1: Yeah, and I think what we've found during this trial is, you know, just how important the DNA is, not only in um, leading police to someone who who they believe could be um, the accused, but also in terms of exonerating mm. suspects who they had sitting there that they were looking at.
2: Yeah, indeed. I mean, o- obviously, ruling in people is is one of the major police um, incentives and and goals for uh, investigation but ruling people out is equally as important and as regular listeners to the podcast will know there had been a, a man in the fr- in the frame for claremont um for many many years a man called lance williams who had been followed interrogated um, arrested and um, crucially for him it eventually he had had his dna um taken from him voluntarily um and then when they got this positive sample back from the uk in 2008 they obviously ran it against mr williams's dna and it was not a match which was the, the the moment that he was able to be officially ruled out having been almost exclusively ruled in for many many years previous to that um so that was obviously a major moment um probably not a very good one for the for the officers that had that had um doggedly uh, you know, uh, pursued him for so many years, but it, it was what it was, and uh, as I, as I just just said, it did lead them down the road, which eventually led to the to the door of Bradley Robert Edwards.
1: Over the course of um the DNA portion of this trial, we've heard so much about contamination. And I guess, Brendan, is this something that would happen in most trials that there would be discussions about whether the DNA has or hasn't been contaminated?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's, it's really... We, we know that the testing um, and, the, and the methods that we use to derive a DNA result are really quite bulletproof. So the most of the argument around how those results were derived in court um, fall to kind of the surrounding um, aspects of, of the, the process. One of those is obviously contamination. Some of the other things that are argued are things like the statistics and how we arrive at the, the um, results and all that sort of stuff. But contamination is certainly one of um, the most contended points um, in, a, in a courtroom with regards to DNA um, results because we know the testing method is well tested. We know that a result means that, um, like, the result is, is um, accurate. It's just a matter of how did we arrive at that result. And if contamination can be um, a, um, an opportunity that a, de- a defence can, can raise in, in a courtroom, then... They um,
1: they certainly will, yeah. And Tim, as an observer of the trial, it almost feels at times like it's swung wildly from mm. one side to the other.
2: Yeah, and that is the nature of trials. I mean, obviously, uh, defence and prosecution both get their own turns, and when you're listening to the prosecution, and these are both very, very senior barristers, uh, Miss Carmel Barbagallo is making good arguments, obviously. That's what she's there to do. And so you think, oh, wow, uh, you know, the evidence is so strong. Yeah. There's no possible way he could be acquitted. And then Mr. Jovich gets his turn. Paul Jovich, who's Mr. Uh, Edwards' lead barrister, because he has two working for him. Um, and... Uh, and doubts start to creep in because that is Mr. Yovich's job to try and create a reasonable doubt, and and the DNA being so central, being so important, um, being so crucial, uh, it has felt from day to day, and sometimes from morning to afternoon, that uh, that the scales of justice are, go- are just tipping back and forth, um, and the contamination evidence in this part of the trial was was that. The tipping point, if you if you if you want to put it like that, because that is the key question that Mr. Jovic is trying to raise. How did that DNA get on Kira's fingernail? They're not they're not disputing that it is Mr. Um, Edwards's DNA. But they are disputing very, very hotly how it got there. Miss Barbara Gallo says it got there when Kira was fighting for her life, where Mr Edwards was attacking her and and murdering her up in Eglinton in um, 1997. Mr Jovic says no, it got there because Mr Edwards' DNA was already in the lab from the 95 samples from Karakata, and somehow it has managed to find its way out of a pot, through a lid, through another lid and into another pot that contained uh, Kira's fingernails. And that is that is what the argument has been uh, um, for six weeks or so. And to prove that point or to try and ram that point home, Mr Yovich then raised a seemingly endless string of other contamination events that had uh, occurred in the Pathwest Lab, the main um, forensic laboratory in Perth. Um, related to this case not just general ones in other cases but relating to claremont and at times we would we were here scratching our heads thinking how can this possibly happen again and again and again on the biggest uh, murder trial a uh, murder investigation i should say in in perth's history but um he did find them raised them and, and went through them um, in in great detail but then swinging back to the other way there was no actual direct evidence to show that Mr. Edwards's DNA had somehow got on Kira's fingernails. So you've got on the one hand you've got, well, you've got all these other examples, so what's to say it didn't happen?" And on the other hand, you've got, "Well, but you can't say it did." So that's, that's, that's what Justice Stephen Hall, the judge alone, is going to have to uh, ponder when we eventually get to um, the pondering stage.
1: And we can tell from the questions that you've all been sending into us that, you know, you have been torn between both sides in the same way um, that Tim is just describing right now. So we want to go through some of these questions that you have sent through to us. The first one's from Shane uh, Shaw. On what date did the police obtain the DNA from the Karakata rape, which was later matched to the accused?
2: So that was the day of or certainly the hours after the rape at Karakata occurred in February 1995. Um, the victim got up from the cemetery where she had been attacked, walked to Hollywood Hospital, semi-naked, was taken in, was cared for by nurses there. And then people from the SARC, which is the sexual assault squad, came to her um, and took the samples that they needed to right there on the spot. Later on, when the the DNA was matched, more samples were taken from um, the uh, from the shelves in Pathwest because only one of them was actually tested at the time. There were more left that were completely and pristine, and they were also tested and got the same results. But so February nineteen ninety five is when those swabs were taken and when they went into the Pathwest lab.
1: So then, on what date did they identify DNA from Kira Glennon's fingernail clippings, which was
2: later matched to the accused? So this is a big fast forward, as I said, to mm. 2008. These fingernail clippings were taken um, the day after Kira's body was discovered in 1997. They sat in pots uh, for a, a large, uh, largely sat in pots. Some of them were examined, others weren't. But then we fast forward all the way to 2008 when they were sent to the UK under the um, hand of Laurie Webb, a senior forensic pathologist, and um, Jim Stanbury, the head of macro investigation at the time. They took them personally, hand luggage, didn't leave their side from Perth to uh, London and then to Yorkshire. um, And then that's where that testing was done. And that was in the August, September 08. And then December 08 was when the results came back.
1: And then Shane takes it to that next step and wants to know on what date then did they finally connect the two and identify the accused? And uh, he's referring here and he's interested in that moment where they then got the uh, DNA swab
2: from Bradley Edwards. Mm. So, and then we fast forward another eight years shane to 2016 so they had um kira's fingernail match they had Karakata match but they didn't have a name and for all, the, all those years they still didn't have a name until 2016 when the cold case squad pulled another box of another crime um, and tested that and that is the huntingdale break-in a kimono was left behind at that crime scene had never been tested until 2016 they tested that got another match so that matched all three crimes but they still didn't have a name so then they went to other evidence that had been gathered in the huntingdale um, investigation they got a fingerprint um, that had been left on a door frame they ran that through the national fingerprint fingerprint database and finally got the name of mr edwards which because it matched another crime that he had committed in 1990 so that's when they got the name surveillance ramped up um, uh, one billion percent they followed him to the cinema they being the police obviously mr edwards had been drinking a bottle of sprite he disposed of it they the police recovered that bottle ran a DNA test on that bottle and got mr edwards's dna so finally after more than 20 years they had the link between the rape um, and mr edwards uh, and kira and that is when they swooped arrested and eventually charged mr edwards with the murder of kira and jane rimmer
1: So, Shane, I hope that uh, joins the dots for you there and makes that timeline uh, seem a little bit clearer. So, Brendan, we have some questions for you that have been sent in to us. Uh, The first one's from Fiona in Bondoon. I don't know if that's Bindoon. My amateur understanding is that the defence's claim to contamination of DNA sample must come from one of the three sources, the intimate swab taken from the Karakatta victim, the Huntingdale kimono or the extracts taken from them. Does the DNA extracted from any of these items of evidence display any degradation? And if so, is it consistent with the sample taken from AJM forty forty two found by Dr. Whitaker?
0: So, people are obviously really um, grasping onto this de- degradation concept um, since Dr. Whitaker kindly brought it to everyone's attention on the on the stand. Um, now, just to clarify, I'm I'm pretty sure, and Tim might um, be able to correct me on this, but the day following that evidence that he gave, um, he did clarify that Mm. um, to to say that uh, the degradation um, of... I can't remember what sample it was, but you can't say that, you know, if if there is a contamination event, that they were both subject to the same degradation. So... I just want to clarify that. But what's kind of important in, in people getting their head around this concept of DNA degradation is it's, it's, not, it's not an exact um, science. Um, it's, not, it's not a, a discrete measure. Um, we do have techniques now where we can associate a physical number to uh, degradation. Uh, we call it a degradation index. Um, where we can kind of give a, a, a numerical scale. But in the context of what's been presented, when we're looking at a DNA result as an EPG or an electropherogram, um, and we refer to it as a ski slope appearance, it, it's just an indicator. And, and I've been kind of thinking of the best way to to explain this um, in a layperson's comparison for people. And I suppose it's, it's akin to explaining the, the spiciness of a meal. Um, you can call it mild, you can call it medium, you can call it hot. Um, but, and degradation is much the same. We can say it's not degraded, um, there's a small amount of degradation, there's a large amount of degradation, but it's there's not really this sliding scale between that. So when we say something is degraded, it really is a... Um, kind of hand to the breeze, sort of uh, feeling of, of what that electropherogram looks like. Um, now, we now do have techniques that we can measure it more accurate, or not accurately, but but give it a, a actual number rather than this uh, kind of arbitrary, subjective measure of a lot, a little, not much. Um, but that in, in the instance of what's been referred to here, we don't have that. Now, to go back to the question, is it possible to evaluate whether the degradation is similar? Um, I, having not actually looked at you know, and compared these uh, results or EPGs, I can't categorically say. But you really would be saying not degraded or is degraded. Um, and that doesn't necessarily go to, go to speak to the fact that, well, because those two samples are degraded, they both must have been degraded because of decomposition. We could have two samples. One um, is degraded because it's sat out in, in the sun or in the environment in a nice dry spot, but it's been outside for three years. And then we could have another sample that's been uh, on the body of a de- or on a decomposing body for three weeks. And they will both show similar or they might both show similar signs of degradation, but it doesn't mean they were together at the same place at the same time. Yeah. So hopefully that answers the
1: question. Yeah, and I, I think so. And there are quite a few questions which are, which are similar to that. I mean, I think this one uh, that I have for you is slightly different. The DNA sourced from the intimate swab and the kimono and the subsequent extracts were sperm cells. The DNA extracted from Kira's thumbnail was skin cells. Is there any way of telling one source from another, thus disproving or confirming possible contamination?
0: Yeah, that's that's a good question. We we certainly can make that determination early in the piece when they are cells because sperm cells are very different to skin cells or epithelial cells. Um, So that's easily done. But once we go to the process of extracting the DNA, DNA is DNA because we are popping open those cells and we're removing the DNA from them. And so the DNA sample or the DNA extract taken from a skin cell and the DNA extract taken from a sperm cell are one and the same.
1: Yeah. Eleanor would like to know, is there any way of testing the exhibits again to see if both exhibits or just one contains Mr Edwards', Edwards DNA? Yeah, I
0: think we covered this a little bit um, a number of weeks ago. Um, but to rehash, when we one of the, the difficulty, difficulties we have in... In forensics, with respect to most of the things we do, is we get one go at it, um, because once we once we kind of choose a pathway, we we do some irreversible um, processes. So when it when it comes to collecting a sample of DNA, and I'll just use something really simple, like a, a let's say a fingerprint on a window, um, and we come along with a and we swab that fingerprint off, um, the window, if we've done our job right, shouldn't contain any, any fingerprint, it shouldn't contain any more DNA or cells on it, because if we've done the job right the first time, we've, we've removed all of that cellular material from, from the source. So there's kind of no point going back to the source. Um, and the same goes with the swab, the same goes with a fingernail or, or whatever... Um, exhibit you have. So once we've extracted it, we've we've kind of undertaken this irreversible process where we can't go back.
1: And Tim, uh, you relayed to us uh, through the course of this trial uh, and that about why this pristine sample was so important.
2: Yeah, the the fingernail sample yeah. um, because the prosecution can point to that pot never having been opened this is ajm 40 kira's left thumbnail and say well there is no possible way it could have been contaminated because it's never been opened the top's never been off um but countering that it was combined with ajm 42 which had been opened a couple of times but only a couple of times so that so the the the, w- the way the documentation of in a forensic path lab works uh is very detailed dates and places and names of who exactly was doing what to what when and how um, and so they can uh, the prosecution and defense can both point to very discreet windows of time when this 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 uh, contamination could have happened and the, the prosecution did that very detail in very detailed way by producing various um, um, incarnations of a spreadsheet and dates and times to show exactly when all these um, possible exhibits that have contaminated each other where they were and when they where and when um, and to basically come up with the conclusion for the judge there is no way there is no Mm -hmm. possible way it could have been contaminated because look where jm40 was on this date and look where the intimate swabs from karakata were and never the twain did meet so that's where they're going with it that's where they ended up with it Um that was their big finale when they they finally um, did finish their evidence um the prosecution part of it um and uh, as i said previously um Mr Jovic tried to muddy the waters significantly with the other contamination events that he pointed out but he couldn't really get to the one that he needed to get to so yeah
1: mm. Brendan another question you, for you from Scott with the advances in LCN DNA, which is low copy number DNA technology, making it possible to detect DNA from the smallest of samples, will contamination not also become more likely as smaller contaminations will also be amplified and therefore become easier to detect?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good um, insight from Scott there because that's entirely correct and the newer testing techniques that we have now are much more sensitive, um, it, which is great. They're able to we're able to detect DNA that we would never never have been able to detect before. But what that means is we can also detect contamination much easier. So, it's really important that that whole um, forensic supply chain um, between collection at, at a crime scene and the processing in the lab is we're constantly improving that. And we've seen in the last 10 years new um, forensic standards introduced across um, suppliers of laboratory equipment and laboratory consumables, um, like gloves, like the tubes that we use, all of that sort of stuff. Because what we, in the past, we we're reliant on mostly um, plasticware and things that, that were provided to laboratories working in the medical space. So if I bought in some tubes that I use for my DNA extraction, they were certified as sterile because, mm. you know, they might be used in a microbiology lab and we want to ensure that there's no um, bacteria on them or anything like that. But sterile doesn't mean sterile from human contact. Mm. So um, and certified against there being human contact. And now we have a new standard, the um, international standard for that sort of thing. And we, we now actually have the, the providers of things like those tubes who will not only certify that they haven't been in contact with any human, uh, any human interaction, but they also provide uh, databases of all of their staff So in the event of seeing, you know, one of these um, unusual uh, DNA profiles turning up, we can then check that against the staff of the manufacturers. So um, a bit of a roundabout answer, but I guess it kind of illustrates that it's a constantly moving forward field. And as we kind of turn up this sensitivity level, we really need to turn up our own practices and procedures and be kind of constantly evolving to that challenge. But... Yeah, you're exactly right, Scott. It's much easier to detect contamination now.
1: Do you foresee a time where practices and procedures will be that advanced that um, contamination in cases like these will almost disappear?
0: Oh, that would be... That's the the great day in the future. The holy grail, um, right? Yeah. (laughs) The unfortunate thing is we always... In my mind, we're always going to need to have human interaction, particularly at that crime scene level. Mm, um, yeah. And when you're when you're in the crime scene environment, it's it's, it's not a sterile environment. Um, it's not always practical to be to be undertaking the same level of uh, clean, I suppose, as you would in a laboratory that's temperature controlled at twenty degrees. Um, so. It, it, we'd love to see that. And, and we're seeing advances made. Um, laboratories are moving more to having less and less people or mm. human interaction. We've got, we've got robotics that can do DNA tests now so, so someone's not physically having to manipulate tubes. It's just done all by, um, well, it's called a robot. It doesn't look like the robot that people would envisage, but... Um, there will be a day where basically the laboratory part can certainly be automated. We can put a tube in one end and then get a result out the other end with no person having having taken part in any of that. But I think the other end, the lowest common denominator, is always going to be people the, in the field and and, the, and our need for people. Yeah, nah.
1: yeah. All right. Well. The DNA portion of the trial, most of that did focus on Kira Glennon's body. So, Tim, how do prosecutors prosecutors plan to show Edward's involvement in Jane and also in Sarah's murders?
2: Well, that's a very good question. That Sarah is is an outlier, I suppose, mm. because unfortunately, her body or remains have never been discovered so there's, there is absolutely no chance of any physical evidence linking her and Mr Edwards because her remains have not been found so her case remains entirely circumstantial um, but the prosecution say the circumstances um, are very strong because of the similarities between her disappearance her geographical location when she disappeared i.e. Clermont, the time of night she disappeared the weekend she disappeared um, and the, f- the fact that then Jane and Kira followed, or their disappearances followed. Um, in very similar circumstances, and we do know that they were murdered um, and dumped. Um, so that is that. That is where they that they go with that. Um, there is some other slightly other circumstantial evidence: the screams that were heard on the night that Sarah disappeared in Northam Park, the, the the vague sighting of a of a car possibly from the area where those screams were heard. Um, but that pretty much is it for Sarah? so it is a, a a connection um in terms of the similarities between the cases rather than the physical jane's physical um link to mr edwards we are about to dive very deep into uh, and that link that links to fibers so the prosecution say that um many years many many years after her body was discovered the physical evidence was taken from her body most importantly the hair her her entire hair mass that um, examinations very much later discovered fibers in her hair that link her prosecution say now to mr edwards um There are grey fibres and blue fibres. The grey fibres are said to come from Mr Edwards' car or the car he was driving at the time. Um, It was a work vehicle, but he used it for his own purposes as well. And the blue fibres, they say, are from his work shorts, stroke pants, which were made by Yakka for Telstra exclusively. And it's it's a very distinct um, colour of fibre. In fact, it was called Telstra Blue. So they will that we will now deep dive into that over the next eight nine weeks, um, and that is crucial to the case uh, of, uh, against Mr. Edwards regarding Jane, because that is the only um, physical evidence that links him. And then the fibres are these fibres or these types of fibres were also found um, on Kira's person, in her hair, and on her shirt. Um, and so if the prosecution can match the fibres between the two women and prove that they could not have come from anywhere else but Mr Edwards, they are so distinct, are they, to the environment and the, um, uh, and the personality and everything that went around him um, and the fact that he was driving this distinct model car with this distinct colour um, fibre pants or shorts he was wearing, then you can then link the two women and Mr. Edwards physically, which um, immeasurably strengthens the case, the prosecution case against him.
1: And there was, of course, the fibres also
2: found on the Caracato rape victim's clothing. Correct. So, th- and th- and then that will be the other link, the other physical link, because the prosecution say when um, the victim's shorts were. Um, uh, investigated and re looked at many years later, the blue fibre was again found on and the the shorts as well. So that would be the only physical link between all three women. Um, and as we know, Mr. Edwards has pleaded guilty to the rape. So mm. we 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 know that he said he admits that he was there.
1: Well, as we mentioned in yesterday's uh, bonus podcast, the trial will continue despite. The coronavirus crisis, but I understand there was maybe more restrictions in our courts today, Tim.
2: Yes, that's true, Nat. Um, over the road, um, physically in the Magistrates Court in in Perth, um, families and uh, you know uh, other potential witnesses. So, witnesses, lawyers, police, media—we're all okay to go into the Magistrates Court building. Um, families and supporters of. Um, Uh, accused and victims are being encouraged to stay away Um, but as we discussed yesterday Justice Hall um, has made his very own very strict rules for his trial his court um, and they're the ones we will abide with um, and so as far as we know, um, we will be able to attend, as will witnesses, families, and 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 a small portion of the public, whomever still wants to come, um, will be allowed into court. Um, and so we will um, resume. On Monday with the with the fibre section, um, as I say, it's going to be a very, very deep dive, a very long dive, but uh, one that, again, is very necessary for the case and the trial to to, um, to complete.
1: Yeah. So, Brendan, your students at Murdoch University will need to get in early if they want to be sitting in on uh, court next week.
0: Well, fortunately, they've got a couple of weeks off as a result oh, of okay. coronavirus. So maybe, uh, yeah, maybe they're best to utilise that.
1: Yes. <laughs> Well, if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email us at claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au. Thank you both for your time today. We'll be back on Monday the 23rd when court will resume and we hope you can join us then for Claremont in Conversation.
2: This podcast
0: was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at
1: thewest.com.au. Flashpoint. Returning to 7 on Mondays at 9pm. Demanding change and discussing issues that matter to West Australians.